Do you remember your conversion story? Do you remember it? Can you bring it to mind? Bring that moment to mind when God called you by name and God rescued you? For some of us, we can attach that pivotal event to a single uh, date and place. Some of us have that. For others of us, it's more of a process where we could see God changing and altering our hearts during a season of our lives. Perhaps some of you met the Lord as a young child. For others, maybe as teens or as adults. Some of us felt wooed by the Lord's kindness, and others of us felt the hound of heaven (laughs) nipping at our heels as we tried to run away. But a few things are common to call. First thing is uh, God rarely asks if you're ready. You ready? He typically just shows up. Right, And the second thing is that he doesn't ask to review your spiritual resume ahead of time. Could you please submit that for me? I'd like to review it and see if you're worthy of the call. No. And therein lies the scandal of call, that call is not merit-based. And if you get anything from today, I hope you get that. Call is not merit-based, i.e., who among us really deserves to be a Christian? Who among us? Call is about the grace of God as he extends his hand to us in relationship. Now, in our pastorate this week, don't worry, pastorate people are getting nervous. Is he going to share my story? No, I'm not. Don't worry. Uh, We shared stories about how the Lord called each of us, and the stories were wonderful, and they were also varied. The call might have come in a moment. It takes a lifetime to live it out. While the call comes in a moment, it takes a lifetime to live it out. Call evolves over time. We grow into it, don't we? We grow an understanding of it. We grapple with it. We seek wisdom over it. We seek to be true to it. Sometimes we resist it over the course of our lives. Have you noticed any of this in your own life, or is that just me? Is that just me? No, it's not just me. Good. The gamble paid off. Let's look at Gideon's story in the Old Testament reading today, just briefly. It's interesting, if you read the text carefully, Gideon is essentially hiding in a wine press, and the angel of the Lord calls on him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I find this ironic, maybe a little humorous. God meets us where we're at in life, no matter where that is. In Gideon's case, while he's hiding from his enemies in the wine press, utterly afraid. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Who, who, me? Yes, you. (laughs) God meets Gideon in his fear and gives him a calling to rise up into and to grow up into, and he gives him an assurance. God calls Gideon into something deeper and greater. Today, we have another famous story about calling in Luke 5, 1 to 11. So if you want to jump ahead, you can flip there in your Bibles. This is the calling of the first disciples, and it focuses mainly on Peter, but James and John are in the mix too, okay? Uh, Let's move into that right now. The text begins by saying, on one occasion, meaning this is not an uncommon occurrence, this was typical of Jesus' ministry. The crowd is hungry to hear the word of God, and they're they're pressing in. It mentions that Jesus is standing by the lake of Genesaret. For those of you that go, what in the world is that? That's the Sea of Galilee. So you can, uh, hopefully that clarifies a little bit. These are familiar environs for Jesus and his ministry. The uh, The fishermen had left their boats, were washing their nets. Their workday is done, or so they think, because they fished all night long. And after each fishing trip, the equipment had to be checked and cleaned and readied for the next day. So that's what they're doing. Jesus sees a couple of empty boats, gets into one of the boats, which just, quote-unquote, happens to belong to Simon Peter. Now, 
getting into Peter's boat, do you think that's happenstance or a random choice on Jesus' part? What do you think? Oops, it just happened to be Peter's boat. No, I, I, think, uh, I think we have crafty Jesus here. He has plans for Peter, right? Peter helps him set out a little from the land. Now, in Luke's gospel, uh, this isn't the first time Peter has met Jesus. Back in chapter 4, uh, Jesus has already come to visit his house, has healed his mother-in-law. This might explain why Peter's so willing to let Jesus use his boat. Um, and while Jesus will continue to teach in holy places like the synagogue, his ministry, especially with the disciples, occurs in these everyday venues, just like this one. Jesus meets us where we're at. He goes where the people are. He seeks us out in our everyday lives and in our everyday places. And he chooses Peter's boat as a pulpit, very intentional on Jesus' part. In this case, Jesus doesn't teach in some consecrated church building, right? But out in the open air. So not in a pulpit, but in a smelly old fisherman's boat. How earthy is that? Jesus using the stuff of everyday life to feed these hungry souls that surround him. Thanks be to God for that, because this is something we see again and again and again and again in the scriptures. Uh, as is customary for a rabbi when he teaches, Jesus sat down. That's why there's that mention of him sitting down. It means the rabbi is going to teach. And what's his message? Look at your text there. Do you see any mention of a message? No. Isn't that interesting? Some passages focus mostly on what Jesus said and what his message is. It's interesting that the text give us, gives us no clues about what Jesus speaks about here. None. Um, clearly, that isn't the focal point of this passage. Something else is. All it says is that Jesus speaks. He sits down. He teaches. When he's finished, he tells Peter this. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Now, okay, let, let's think about this. Jesus, the carpenter, <laughs> telling veteran fishermen how to do their job at the end of a very long day. That wouldn't have sat particularly well with me. I don't know about you. Peter and company had been fishing all night with no success. Then they worked the early morning hours cleaning up their nets and doing the things they need to do. Most likely, Peter was exhausted. He said he toiled all night, a long, frustrating, futile night, remember? No catch to show for their hard labor. So full day's work, nothing to show for it. And he's probably looking forward to going home and going to bed and getting some sleep. Peter addresses Jesus here as master. Master, we toiled all night. We took nothing. Master is a term used for tutors and teachers, a word unique in Luke's gospel in the New Testament. But in all seven times it occurs in Luke, it's used in addressing Jesus. Master, we've told all night. We have nothing to show for it. Now, Jesus has beckoned them out into the deep, it says. And you've probably heard me comment on this before in sermons. But this theme of the deep is an Old Testament echo about the primordial sea, that powerful Jewish symbol of chaos, the deep, especially sailors. They're a particularly superstitious lot. This is a place that they believe is potentially haunted. It's a dangerous place. It's a capricious place. And guess what? That's exactly where Jesus wants to go, into chaos, into the deep, to reveal himself to Peter and the others. Now, Peter, as is his habit, initially protests, right? We can hardly blame him for his skepticism. Master, we told all night. We took, we took nothing. There's perhaps an implied rebuke here, maybe. Uh, nighttime, just so you know, was the best time to fish because the fish couldn't see the nets. That's why they fish at night. So when the true professionals, 
fishing at the right time caught nothing. How much stock do you put into a carpenter's opinion on when to fish? An imposition on Jesus' part? Maybe so, outwardly. And while Peter might not agree with Jesus here, he chooses to obey. What he says is, buddy, your word, I'll let down the nets, okay? Lord, we told all night long, we got nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. Well done, Peter. Good. Now, how often do we resist Jesus' claims on our lives because his call seems impractical or maybe just stone-cold crazy? makes no sense. How often do we avoid heading into those deep waters of faith? Maybe because we're convinced that we're not going to see any results, Maybe because we're afraid. I don't know. There's a million reasons there. Let's see what happens to Peter and company when they go outside their comfort zones. Uh, J.C. Ryle has this to say about this passage. and Let me just read you a brief paragraph from him. We are meant to learn the blessing of immediate, unhesitating obedience to every plain command of Christ. Fair enough. The path of duty may sometimes be hard and disagreeable, The wisdom we propose to follow may not be apparent to the world, but none of these things must move us. We are to go straight forward when Jesus says, go. And do a thing boldly, unflinchingly, and decidedly when Jesus says, do it. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. And believe that what we don't see now to be right and reasonable, we shall see hereafter. So acting, we shall never find in the long run that we're losers. Never. So acting, we shall find sooner or later that we reap a great reward. Amen. Good word from J.C. Ryle. Now, this story isn't just about Peter's reluctance, is it? Can you identify with this? This is our story, is it not? This is the church's story. By doing what Jesus asked him to do, in doing so, Peter experiences an epiphany of God. Head out into the deep, Peter. That's where the fish are. Wait and see. Sure enough, let's talk about the catch and the call. Sure enough, because they are intertwined. Catch and call are intertwined here. Sure enough, they bring in a miraculous catch. Now, why do I say it's miraculous? Well, I've already alluded to this before. One, this happens in the daytime. In the daytime, the fish can see the linen nets that they use. Thus, it was customary to fish at night. That's why this illusion of them coming in, and this is the end of their day, not the beginning. The other part that's miraculous is the sheer size of it. It takes two boats to haul it in, and even then, they were sinking. Now, this makes quite an impression on Peter. There's no doubt he sees that this is a miracle based off his reaction. So what is, how does Peter react? Let's, let's talk about that for a minute, because there's a lot packed into his reaction. Well, there's what he doesn't says. He falls down at Jesus' feet and says, depart from me or away from me, For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Away from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. What does that mean? Well, several elements come into play. Three elements, I think, of his reaction. I want to tease out a little bit here. Uh, First, about his reaction, it's just simply that Old Testament fear of the Lord, right? This is, which is simply put, he's overwhelmed with fear and wonder, probably in equal measure. It says they're astonished, struck out of their wits, sensing that he is in the presence of divine power. Notice After the miraculous catch, he doesn't call Jesus master anymore, but it becomes Lord, Lord. A shift has occurred here in Peter's thinking. Something's a little bit different here. It reminds us of the experience of the great saints when they experienced the presence of God, like Abraham, like Job, like Isaiah. So the first thing I see in Peter's reaction is that Old Testament, that fear of the Lord. Second element so characteristic of Peter in, in so many of these uh, scenarios with Jesus, 
there is an element of resistance. There's an element of resistance. When Peter's called, he resists just like Moses, just like Isaiah, just like Jeremiah, and just like Jonah do. He initially objects to Jesus' command to go out in the deep water, but then he does what he's asked. We talked about that. Then here he says, depart from me or away from me, right? Whatever Jesus is offering, Simon Peter is having trouble accepting it. And a picture, this is a picture of how many of us react to the grace of God, not just Peter when that hand is extended to us. Now, this should give you some peace of mind to know how many of the greats struggled, resisted, and fought the call of God in their lives. That should give you some great peace of mind. I mean, it's almost funny. It's almost a prerequisite for growing in faith and of learning to trust in the Lord. So second piece of, of, uh, excuse me, Peter's reaction, resistance. There's an element of resistance there. And thirdly, and this is the final one, Peter feels his unworthiness. Peter feels his unworthiness. Now, this is not a new biblical theme. This is a common biblical theme for someone to feel unworthy in the presence of God, okay? The words of Peter are that of a man to whom God has drawn very close, probably too close for comfort based, based off what Peter says. Experiencing this miracle makes him feel strongly his own smallness and his own sinful brokenness. Okay, He confesses that. It's kind of like Adam after the fall. His first instinct is to, is to hide himself. What is it? Jesus, away from me. Jesus, depart from me. You know, It's almost like it's a way of giving a stiff arm in a way. He feels unworthy. Now, I want you to observe something about Peter's reaction here beyond what I've just said. This shows us that calling involves fight and flight. You know those two instincts that we have when we come to moments of, of crisis or fear, fight, fight or flight? Often we see both of these at work in calling. We resist God. We, we fight in some way. And we also want to run away, <laughs> like Jonah. So fight and flight, those instincts are at work at some point when you come in contact with calling. It happens to be in those moments of fear and crisis. So do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about fight and flight? Have you guys experienced that in calling? Both? Maybe one or the other? We might default to one or the other. It's okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's normal. I'm trying to normalize this and say, guess what, guys? <laughs> this pattern of human nature, when God's call comes, of wanting to fight God or run away, very common, okay? So Peter, the rock, love it, falls to his knees trembling and says, go, go away from me, Lord, for I, I'm a sinful man. It's a moment of deep humility. It's the first time the word sinner occurs in Luke, is right here. This is Peter's confession. This is his confession. One author describes it this way. Congregations and individuals usually think of confession of sin as being offered to God in order to receive grace. No, this story offers a counter view. Upon receiving grace from Jesus in the form of a catch of fish he could not accomplish on his own, Simon confesses his sinfulness, his waywardness. Instead of trying to persuade God to address the fact that we are woefully and painfully mired in the human condition, we realize that God has addressed our condition and we're able to confess where we're mired. Okay, So let me, let me simplify that. So in response to the grace of God, that catch of fish, Peter confesses. In light of God's pursuit, Peter lays down his life eventually before Jesus as an offering. God's hand is extended always to us first. Always. That's the first gesture. 
Eugene Peterson is fond of saying prayer, or was fond of saying, prayer is always answering speech. And what does that mean? It means God has the first word, always. And Peter responds to that first word right here. Okay? So, um, let's look at, at the call here as it plays out. So we've seen Peter's confession. We've seen the catch. Here comes the call. Well, pardon me. Back up one moment. I want you to see something about Peter's response that's really interesting. It is very similar, very parallel to Isaiah's call in chapter 6, 1 to 10. There's four kind of pieces there that I want to break it down into. There's the epiphany. That's where God reveals himself. That's one. Two is the person's reaction. Three is there's some divine reassurance. And four, uh, some, the commission comes. So one, epiphany. God shows up. God does something. In this case, it's the catch of fish. Okay? There's a reaction. Away from me, Lord. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. There's reassurance. I haven't gotten there yet. And then the commission that follows. That reassurance gives strength to that commission, gives us a strengthening. So Jesus' word of reassurance is don't be afraid. First thing, don't be afraid, Peter. That's the reassurance we just talked about. We struggle, we wrestle against the call, and God is there to reassure us, which is such a kindness when you think about it. He didn't say, hey, did you hear what I just said? Come on. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) There is a reassurance there that happens before the commission comes, okay? So here's the commission. From now on, you'll be catching people. You'll be catching men. You'll be catching men and women. And from now on indicates a break from Peter's previous life. The point is, everything's everything's different from this point forward. Everything is different from this point forward. Your life's purpose is forever altered, Peter. Things are different. The call of Jesus is always this uncompromising fork in the road. And from now on, you'll be catching people. The Greek word here for catching is interesting. It's pretty rare in the New Testament. But here's what it means, and this is wonderful. To catch alive or to spare life. Isn't that wonderful? To catch alive or to spare life. Disciples, you're no longer going to catch soon-to-be dead fish. That's not your vocation anymore. You're going to catch people. You're going to offer them freedom and liberty and new life in Jesus Christ. You will be catching men and women, right? This tense actually is continuous, and it shows something that's a habitual practice. Habitual, okay? This is the new call on their lives, and this is their new way of being in the world. You're going to be catching people, catch, catching people alive, sparing their lives. I mean, it's beautiful. And the text says at the very end, and they left everything to follow him. This includes James and John, too. They're kind of lumped in towards the end there, but it's, the action of this passage focuses mainly on Peter, but they're there as well, James and John. They leave everything to follow him, which this is an important theme in Luke because Luke talks a good bit about possessions and stuff, and he makes a real clear point that people leave something to follow Jesus. They leave something to follow Jesus always, and that something they leave is, is everything. They leave everything to follow him. Now remember, think about this. Timing, timing's everything. They have just had the greatest catch they've ever had, okay? They're going to leave that behind. They're going to leave their nets behind. They're going to leave their boats behind. And let me underscore this. They're leaving behind their livelihood. They're leaving behind their very means of subsistence here, leaving it behind to follow Jesus. Their encounter with Jesus has completely reoriented their lives. They're leaving everything. Shows us what a disciple is. 
There's an old allegory here about this passage. And, you know, allegories can get a little funky. They can go far afield and, and be, they can be played out way too far. But this one, I, I think, this one plays. I think this one actually works. Here's an allegory that's been put to this passage. The ship is an emblem of the church. And that's something I've talked about before. The, the, the ship of the church going out, it's like an ark. The ship is the emblem of the church. The fishermen are its ministers. That is everybody here. Okay? You're the fishermen. The net what do you think the net is? The gospel. That's right. The net is the gospel. And that miraculous catch of fish is the success linked to being faithful and obedient to what Jesus says. They even put it off sometimes as the shore is eternity, and that goes a little too far for my taste. But the rest of this really plays. Success in fishing under Jesus' authority is a prophetic symbol for the mission in which Peter and the other disciples will soon take part. Head out into the deep, Peter. That's where the fish are, you'll see. Now let's, let's start to wrap things up here. Eugene Peterson has written a lot of books, uh, especially for pastors. He has one called The Unnecessary Pastor, and he gives us pastors this advice, and this is great. Listen to this. It's almost always a mistake to recruit exceptional people for leadership. <laughs> Look for ordinary Christians. That's mostly what you have anyway, but prize them, value them, and appoint them as leaders. Isn't that good? And that's exactly what Jesus does. Exactly what he does. Who does Jesus call to be his disciples? Exceptional leaders? By any indication, do we have any? I mean, these guys couldn't catch anything this night. This isn't a, their shining moment exactly, is it? Who does Jesus call to be his disciples? Well, everyday people, everyday people. What Peterson calls ordinary Christians, those 12 ordinary everyday people, his disciples, they helped change the course of human history, didn't they? Don't underestimate everyday people when Jesus gets a hold of them, when you're willing to leave everything behind to follow him wholeheartedly. Okay. I want to leave you with three questions, and I, I would encourage you if you have a pen or something to write these down, not because they're brilliant or so good, but because if you're like me, you need to ruminate on these things. You need to think about them and pray over them during the, week, during the coming week. So that's, that's the reason why. So if you have a pen or something, jot these down. There's three questions. Firstly, where do you resist the call of God in your life? Where do you resist the call? And that may not be the season you're in, okay? So I'm not saying... You're all resisting the call of God, okay? Some of you may be in this place. Let these questions hit you where you're at. Where do you resist the call of God on your life? Where? So what's your fight and flight response? What's driving that? Can you probe that? You know, Ask the Holy Spirit to probe your heart and, and get in there a little bit and describe that for you. In this season of your life, perhaps God is seeking to sharpen or refine your call. Are you open to this? That may be where more of you are at. God is sharpening, refining your call in some way, and you may want to fight it. Are you open to that? Okay. So where do you resist the call of God in your life? That's one. Two, and this is a biggie, where do you lean upon your own merit instead of upon the arms of grace? Peter battles this one. We battle this one. Where do you lean on your own merits instead of upon the arms of grace? Uh, don't feel qualified for the call. Don't feel worthy of it. Feel sort of empty-handed. Good. <laughs> None of us are qualified. Welcome to the community of the redeemed. Welcome. Many of us spend our entire lives unlearning a works 
faith-based understanding of salvation and sanctification. We sp- it's the great unlearning, isn't it? Because there's something in us that needs to be able or wants to be able to earn the grace of God. But that's not grace. That's not grace, friends. So where do you lean on your own merits instead of upon the arms of grace? Thirdly, last question. A little different tack. Where might God be striving to get your attention in the ordinary circumstances of your life? Where might God be striving to get your attention in the ordinary circumstances of your life? Uh, Look, God might use miracles to get your attention. I'm not uh, discounting that. But it feels like he's more apt to speak to you in the mundane parts of your life, right? The day in, the day out. He meets us where we're at. He comes to us. That's the incarnation, isn't it? Where is God calling you out of the ordinary into the extraordinary? Okay? So where's God trying to get your attention in the ordinary circumstances of your life? Okay, those are three questions. While call might, I'm going to return to this. While call might come in a moment, it takes a lifetime to live it out. Call comes in a moment, and if so, it still takes a lifetime to live it out. Remember your call. Heed the call. Bear forward in faith. God's grace marks your path and upholds your steps. So head out into the deep by faith. You're sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And literally, as Ryle says, you cannot lose. You cannot lose. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.